subject, um, we might say that it's been pretty bleak in the way that we've looked at things. But we're going to move to a more positive posture pretty soon. We're not going there today so much, but we're going to get there eventually. But to get there, we really need to have a good understanding of the breadth and the depth of the problem that we're dealing with. And in understanding that, we have to understand that it's not just political, and it's not just a medical problem, and it's not just a social problem. It is a spiritual problem, and not just a spiritual problem in the theological way envisioned by sort of what we might call pop culture Christianity, and it's emotionally charged theology, which is out there and is often on display for people to see. This thing has deep roots, and it's embedded in the occult, and drugs are a favorite tool of the great relentless enemy of mankind. And it's not something that can be rooted out by casual or polite or half-hearted measures. It just can't be dealt with that way. It's far too serious, too, far too um, uh, insidious in its character for it to be dealt with in any but the most serious and careful way. So we've been working on getting a biblical understanding of the real or the true nature of drugs and their connection with the occult. And, and until one is a Christian really has a good grip on this reality, I don't think we're fully equipped to either understand the matter or required what is, or understand what's required to overcome it. We have to understand what it is we're dealing with. But overcome it, we must. We must overcome it. Uh, Fox 13, our local Fox affiliate, issued uh, this report recently. Some of you may have seen it there or on uh, other um, uh, outlets like Not the Bee. John uh, put, put me on to this uh, earlier this week. Uh, the University of Washington ran a study to see if drug smoke from fentanyl and methamphetamine is affecting transit operators and passengers. They, the study analyzed 28 evenings between March and June of this year, and researchers collected samples from 11 buses and 19 train cars. Out of the 78 air samples, researchers found fentanyl in a quarter of them. 100% of these air samples had methamphetamine in them. 100% of the air samples on the buses and train cars had methamphetamine in them. Out of the 102 surface samples, almost half had detectable fentanyl. 98% of those air samples had met, uh, methamphetamine in them. Now, that's the university's report. So what they're telling you is in, in the, those modes of public transportation, buses or trains, um, you're going to find fentanyl and methamphetamine, and that almost all the time, the, the latter one, almost in every occasion. But the university, in its wisdom, doesn't want you to worry about this. It's not to be concerned because, they say, the people that are using the drugs that leave this residue, they're not trying to overdose when they take the drugs and when they're using them 
on public transportation. They're just feeding their habit. And therefore, you probably will not be in a situation where you'll overdose from any secondhand exposure. So it's all well. All's good in public transportation. You'll just be exposed to normal amounts enjoyed by the addict traveling with you on the public transit system. Now, I'm saying that with tongue-in-cheek because uh, obviously all is not well, and that does not bode well at all. The assurance is pathetic, that assurance. But it's also naive. There have been 1,200 overdose deaths in King County alone so far this year. And they may be looking at a record if uh, this keeps up at this pace. Um, And it's a record among those who are not purposefully trying to overdose on the train or on the bus. But there's still 1,200 of them, uh, 1,300 of them suffering from it or dying from it. Meanwhile, King County is on track to have how many homicides by gun, do you think? If you just look at the news and you listen to the news, you would think that the numbers are probably going to be pretty close, right? Well, they're actually looking at less than 100, if the present track continues. So less than 100 homicides by gun and 1,200 by drug overdose. And yet the big issue is gun control, not drug control. It's for that reason I say it's something we have to overcome. This is is not sustainable over the long run. The Bible speaks of this connection between the occult and drugs in a very matter-of-fact way. As we've uh, pointed out, the scripture speaks of witches and sorcerers, but the term can be legitimately translated druggist, and it's so closely was it uh, associated with dabblers in the black arts um, that drugs and drug usage are, are sort of interchangeable with magic arts and, and the sorcerer or the witch or the, the wizard. Um, the usage of drugs to bend the mind, to manipulate behavior, to s- seduce the will, and of course, ultimately to even assassinate victims was a regular part of the sorcerer's life and activity. Now, what we began looking at last time was the way sorcerers and drugs and magic, the way those things are employed uh, and how that was used in biblical times so that we would have a reference of what the Bible is referring to when it speaks of these things. And I don't want to review all the linguistic information that we went over last time. And I'd urge you to go back and listen to that message if you missed it. But simply stated, sorcery is an old word that signifies the mixing or preparing of drugs. So a sorcerer or poisoner, sometimes they were called that, sorcerer or poisoner, was the the one who mixed those drugs and was also at times termed, especially in the context of the Bible, a magician. Now, last week we saw that in the days of Moses, the sorcerers or the magicians of Pharaoh were employed to undermine uh, the ministry of Moses and of Aaron. And 
It appears that they were used to demonstrate that Moses and Aaron were nothing more than magicians whose work was not the result of God's power working through them, but the common trickery, sleight of hand, uh, drug use that was employed by the magicians of Egypt and the sorcerers of Egypt. So they weren't trying to show that they were more powerful than Jehovah, but trying to show that Moses and Aaron weren't any different and had no more power than the magicians had. Something the uh, Egyptians could achieve by their drugs and by their sleight of hand. Um, That's what they tried to point out Moses was doing. And of course they failed at that, and we know how that story goes. But it's the intent that we want to focus on, not the outcome. It's the intent that's of interest to us. In short, these servants of the occult, they employed drugs, among other things, to give the impression that they could accomplish things normally only associated with the power of God or the power of the gods. We could put it that way for, for those in Egypt. And we have to add one, one more factor here before we move on that I don't think can be ignored. I don't think anybody would doubt that in that contest when Moses first appeared and called for the release of God's people and, and the rods were thrown down and the magicians were then summoned by Pharaoh and they did the same, I don't think there can be any doubt but that Satan was involved in what was taking place there that this was not without his presence uh, and his influence in that moment and in that scene. So we don't want to lose sight of that as we think about this and and move forward. But let's turn our attention to the next text. And I'm sorry I didn't have notes for you today, but I just wasn't able to get them uh, together. But the next text, um, and it's a text in which we find this idea of drug-mixing sorcerers, It's Exodus chapter 22 and verse 18. And it's a short verse, and it's one we've referenced before. And it says very succinctly, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Pretty pretty short statement, pretty clear statement. You shall not let a sorceress live. And you notice that it comes just two chapters after the giving of the law so that it's, it's very close to the original giving of the commandments. Now, obviously, when you hear that, you should not suffer or permit a sorceress to live. It's referring to a female sorcerer. And the natural question is, does that mean that women were to be executed and men tolerated? Because it doesn't say you should not suffer a sorcerer to live. And the answer, logically, is no, of course, but critics kind of glam on to things like this because they'll pick up anything that they can, real or imagined, logical or not, and they'll say, well, that just applies to women who were involved in these things, not, not to men. But all we need to do is use the scripture to interpret scripture, and the answer, I think, comes across clearly enough. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 27, it says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer, shall surely be put to death. They shall be uh, stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And these are all in the same category together. They're different uh, 
aspects to the influence that's being used, but they're all involved in employing these various aspects of drug use and sleight of hand and other sorts of things in order to bring about what they're accomplishing. So you can't really put them in a separate category in that sense. If you're looking at what they're employing to carry out what they're doing, they're all in the same camp together. And it's very careful in Leviticus to say, a man or a woman who does this is to be killed or executed. And in case you're not clear on it still, they're to be stoned with stones, just to make sure you know that they are to be put out. Now, the point is that all these offenses were to be eliminated, whether they were carried out by males or females. The same word appears that is sorceress here, appears in the masculine form in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 10. It says there, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. (coughs) Excuse me. They're just not to be found among you. And that passage speaks plainly enough for itself. The one who is a drug sorcerer, as the Greek refers to them, should not be uh, permitted to live in Israel. That's the the law here. These characters were associated throughout the world with pagan idolatry and all the lewd and drug-based practices that were a part of it. The success of this effort Uh, that is the effort of the sorcerer or the magician, the success of that effort, whether it was truly demonic in nature or it was merely the work of a charlatan, depended in a very real sense and continues to depend on the superstitious gullibility and the powerful fears the unregenerate mind is subject to especially when exposed to mind-altering drugs. This is an aspect of this that's really important that we get a hold of. Just think about it for a moment. Satan, the, the bitter enemy of God and humankind, perpetually plays off the irrational foolishness and the powerful fears that can be conjured up in the unregenerate mind and heart. Think back with me to to what it was like in the days of Noah uh, before the flood among men and women. Think back about what that says. It's Genesis 6-5, and there we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was was only evil continually. Just listen to that again. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what we have there is the intention of his thoughts. And what were the intentions of the thoughts of pre-flood men and women? Evil, only evil, continually. The whole framework of their thinking from the very center or core of their being, was noxiously wicked from sunset to sunset. Alfred Edeshine, uh, 
says that this phrase means more than the total corruption of our nature as we should now describe it and refers to the universal prevalence of open, daring sin and rebellion against God. So here's the state of pre-fallen man in in his mind and in his heart and in the very core of who he is. And, And who is he? Well, he is not just someone who is corrupt, but there's a universal prevalence in him of open, daring sin and rebellion against God. And as one commentator points out, if this were written by a mere flawed human observer, you might say, well, he's exaggerating a little bit for effect. You know, this, this is just trying to make a point. But this is the observation of God as dictated and preserved by him in the person of his Holy Spirit in his word. This is what God saw in mankind. This state of, in his mind and in the core of who he was, a continual propensity and and desire to do evil. So now, that's the pre-flood. Now, the flood comes down, and Noah and his family come out of, out of the ark, and they immediately make a sacrifice, demonstrating, among other things, the dependence of men and women upon the grace of God still. So nothing's changed that in that way. And what does God say as the sweet smell of Noah's sacrifice ascends up before him? It's in Genesis 8:21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, because he's learned his lesson, and he's no longer evil to the core. I can see by your smiles. You know, that's not what the Lord said. He said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Not because of any change in man, but because of my grace and the age of grace that was coming. And that's why there was not going to be any further judgment. There was no change in the potential of the heart of man. He still has this propensity to evil. And to descend into the continual practice of evil. There's no anticipated change in humankind on the part of the all-knowing God. Now here it is, beloved. And and try to listen to this carefully. Who in their right mind would pour gasoline into a dumpster fire? You were driving down the street and you saw a dumpster on fire... And maybe it's threatening a building full of people nearby. Who in their right mind would say, oh, I'm to get some gasoline and pour that in there, see if we can't get that fire hotter? Nobody would do that. Nobody in their right mind. So who would deliberately take a mind and a heart already seething with this spirit of continually doing evil all the time and make it a slave to a substance that only opens it further to demonic influence. 
Who in their right mind would do that? Why would you do that? You, you already see this, this propensity there in, in the heart of man. And now you're going to give him something that is going to make it easier for him to fall further, to get darker, to involve himself in, in more bitter and ruinous things, to threaten others with his violence or her violence. That's what you're going to do. You're going to give them that. Why would you give them something that enhances the imagination of a person like that? Do you really want to get that person having a broader imagination? They're, they're already evil in their intent. You want to help them to find, discover new ways to be evil? The National Institute of Health says that this, and it's an unbiased report, and it's on the effects of marijuana, and it's just a, a, a bland report on the use of marijuana. And it says this. Many people experience a pleasant euphoria and sense of relaxation. Now, if you listen to those who push for the, the legalization of marijuana and the regular use of marijuana, that's where their report stops. It's just for relaxation and a pleasant sense of euphoria. But the National Institute of Health goes further, and it says other common effects, which may vary dramatically among different people, include heightened sensory perception, that is, seeing brighter colors and that sort of thing, laughter, altered perception of time, and increased appetite. On the surface, all those things sound pretty innocuous, don't they? But do you want to take those kinds of enhanced uh, experiences and put them in the hands of somebody who has the potential of being evil continually in his thoughts or her thoughts? Then it takes on a whole different character. The report goes on. Pleasant experiences with marijuana are by no means universal. Instead of relaxation and euphoria, some people experience anxiety. Don't you want to take somebody who has the potential for real evil and make them more anxious? Is that what you want to do with that person? You want to put them in a place where they're going to be exposed to something like that? Anxiety, fear, distrust, and panic. These effects are more common when a person takes too much the marijuana has an unexpectedly high potency, or the person is inexperienced. People who have taken large doses of marijuana may experience an acute psychosis, which includes hallucinations, delusions, and a loss of the sense of personal identity. They want to take a person who's been told all their life that they're basically good and expose them to a drug that will help them to lose their identity? If I'm not basically good, then what am I? Basically something else. And you're going to, and that's what they really are. And you're going to expose them to the drug that helps them to make that progress? Now, without judging the character of the effects, just their nature, this is not something 
you want to hand over to people. You are, as the Bible teaches, totally depraved and capable of what the Lord God calls evil from their youth upward. That's the state of post-flood man. It's not so much the drug that's the danger. That's where we want to see this in as much clarity as we can. It's not so much the drug that's the danger, but the sinful creature to whom it's introduced. That's where the real danger is, not in the drug itself, but in that sinful creature who's partaking of it. How many of you use Scott's Moss Enhancer on your lawns? Well, why don't you do that? Because you don't want to feed what's going to destroy, obviously, your lawn and ruin it. You're trying to eradicate that. It would be destructive to your lawn. The same principle applies here. Why would you take someone who's already on a destructive and self-ruinous course and give them something that will help them on their way? Why would you do that? And yet that's what's being done. And who would be behind doing that? Who is the deceiver and the murderer from the beginning? It's Satan who's the one that's behind it. Right? We know that. And so when we see this, we have to recognize there's more at work here than just politics and just medicine and and, uh, recreational uh, opportunities and so on. And you see it as it plays out here to Israel. The danger to Israel uh, was so great And it was such a threat to their covenant uh, agreement that the only safe course was to execute such a woman and to follow uh, and allow her no memorial. And that's kind of the force of what's said here. You're not only going to not permit her to live, you're not going to permit her to have any kind of living memorial at all. you, You cut her off and then... Her name is to be forgotten. She's not to be remembered in any way. She's, she's to be dead to all of Israel and gone. Because the threat was so great to the people to lead them away from the truth and to lead them into idolatry. A witch in its uh, import is a knowing woman as a wizard is also a knowing, cunning, or wise man. But the knowledge implied by the term is of a peculiar kind, a knowledge of occult and mysterious things, a skill in disclosing or foretelling matters that lie beyond the reach of the ordinary human, uh, human intelligence, and supposed to be acquired by means of an express or implicit compact with some evil spirit, says Bush. And that was the problem. Because the people were being tempted to turn from God and to follow another God, to fall into idolatry. And it's important to realize that this kind of behavior has been evident in cultures all through history. So what is it we find here with this second example? This behavior, whether in conjunction with evil spirits or demons or not, whether involving drugs and potions or not, was not to be tolerated in the least part 
because it threatened the people's consecration to the Lord and their ability to maintain their covenant commitment to him. Remember, they stood before the Lord and they said, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Just tell it to Moses and not to us. But whatever you tell him we're supposed to do, we'll do. And then along comes the sorcerer and says, well, actually God's not God. So you should be worshiping these gods. And you should be following these gods like everybody else does. And immediately the whole first table of the law is broken because they have turned to idolatry. It just was not to be tolerated. The presence of uh, these purveyors of drugs and, and sexual promiscuity, among other things, brought the people to idolatry. And we're going to have to stop there. But if you just listen to Deuteronomy 18, it says this, and we already read it once, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. I'm not suggesting that everyone who uses drugs is a witch or a wizard or a sorcerer. That's not the point here. The point that we're trying to establish is we're trying to demonstrate that those who employed these things often did so with the intent of deceiving, deluding, and manipulating other people to their advantage. And none of that has changed. And that's what makes it so dangerous. But it's the spiritual element that we'll look at next time that is really where the danger lies and why we have to be understanding what we're dealing with so that we understand how to overcome it and how to pray for people who are involved in it and are being really brought to a state of idolatry through drugs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. It is so clear in its teaching. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a clear understanding. Father, may we just see this this morning, as a, or rather this afternoon, as simple, clear instruction. You don't give to fallen men those things that have the potential of causing them to fall further, to entrap them in their sin. Lord, we see it happening. We see people who, because of the use of drugs, can't think anymore. You can't even approach them with any hope of rescue because they're so lost, because their minds are so distorted and twisted. And Father, um, that's heartbreaking to see that. And Lord, we pray that we would take a proactive view of all of this so that, Lord, we can get in front of it. Right now, we're trying to catch up, but we pray, Lord, that we may find a way to vault over the problem and get in front of it and, Lord, begin to, to work for you and to help others. And, Lord, to um, 
oppose the work of the enemy in our society. With the strength and grace that we have, leaving the outcome to you. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.